my definition of emotional literacy has to do with language management for self-understanding, which journaling is a huge operative for self-understanding and social change through the application of the creative arts. The value of understanding, first of all, that emotions and feelings aren't the same thing. And that when you are emotional, there may be something there that needs to be translated. Hi, this is Tiffy, also known as Journal Holy Journaling Stand. And this episode is a discussion between me and Pamela Sackett, who is an author, language artist, and the founder of Emotion Literacy Advocates. The language we use to describe our feelings has weight. And in this episode, the value of emotion literacy, which is not to be confused with emotional literacy, is highlighted and it is expressed. Pamela was great to speak to. This conversation was extremely insightful and I'm confident that you will believe the same thing by the time we get to the end. And with that being said, enjoy the discussion. So what is the value of emotion literacy? Well, I think it's like driving a car. It's not the best metaphor, but, you know, there are things happening when you steer a car that you're very aware of. You've got the wheel, you've got the body of the car, you see the direction you're going. But that's not happening by itself. There's a motor in there. There's an engine. Um, I drive an electric car, so so it's, it's a little different. But the but there's batteries in there. There's there's stuff in there. There's stuff under the hood, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, most people don't have any idea what's going on under the hood, you know, um, because we're a very results oriented society and behavior centric at that. So I see emotion as a behavior. It's, it's akin to behavior. And I see feelings as a different part of that. Um, feelings are internal. They're nonverbal. And they're part of a constellation of, of almost like entities or a constituency in there of memories, associations, and beliefs that are born out of that. And... Um, needs, soft needs especially, um, but all kinds of needs. Feelings don't happen in a vacuum. They're part of a whole process internally. And we learn at a young age to, we're not witnessed really as much as we should be as a child. We don't have the awareness and the reception from the people upon whom we depend to mirror us back so that we befriend all that stuff going on inside and we know what it is and we understand it. What we get is emotion. What we get, because all of that stuff burbles and comes out on some, on some, you know, through body language, which is part of emotion in a way, it's an expression. An expression isn't always congruent and oftentimes isn't congruent with what's going on inside, especially if 
you were taught that what's going on inside and when you were congruent and were expressing it directly, you were told you're not allowed to or, you know, some something like that. I mean, there's, it's a longer story than I'm able to give it. But um, the value of understanding, first of all, that emotions and feelings aren't the same thing. And that when you are emotional, there may be something there that needs to be translated that isn't a real clear communication. And therefore, you have to start reading between the lines. And as a language artist, that's my job. I write plays, I write, I put words into people's characters' mouths, you know. I have to know the infrastructure. Even if I don't know it because I'm writing in a stream of consciousness, sort of I'm discovering as I go, there's still something there that, um, you know, I'm in, I'm, I can intuit, I can at least intuit that there's something more, that there are other layers. And so that takes more time, that takes more energy, that takes uh, a slower, different part of our brain, really. You know, I got really frustrated last night listening to the news, which I really shouldn't do. And I said, how can these things keep going on with these be these things that people are doing to each other? How could this keep going on? He said, you know what? I said, why, why can't they, you know, why can't they put a stop to it or, you know, hold people accountable? And my husband said, well, you know, you can do all kinds of horrible things very quickly. But if you want to hold people accountable, that's a whole slower process. And actually, that's more of a fight, flight, brain thing, all those decisions that end up being destructive and hurtful. That's a fight, flight, brain thing. And correcting all that and holding people accountable and untangling all that and resolving it and, you know, finding a different way, that's a slower brain process. That's a critical creative systems thinking part of the brain. And that's a much slower process. So somehow when you said that, it helped me because that's, that's something I'm extremely aware of in language. When you are having an emotion literacy exploration process, that's an important piece of it, is language. And if language is polarized or polarizing or in a box like black, white, right, wrong, good, bad, you know that is being generated by a fight, flight, fear brain, survival brain. So when you can recognize that and you understand when you don't recognize it, that's a form of emotion illiteracy. And that's, that's the value of emotion literacy comes out of understanding the nature of illiteracy. Mm. And so I don't know if this is, this could seem so complicated and nonlinear, but there's so many aspects and facets to emotion literacy and why it's valuable one of the things that people may not recognize about it is that the work I do is extremely supportive to the full spectrum, the whole self. And if people have already adapted and put away or hid or buried parts of themselves, they may not recognize when you're supporting all of it because they learn maybe that it, their survival depends on keeping that hidden. So it's, it's a tricky thing. It's really, emotional literacy is really tricky. 
if you're going to do behavior management, that's another thing. And that's more in the area of emotional intelligence and social emotional learning is more of a behavior management thing. What I, my, the, my definition of emotional literacy has to do with language management for self-understanding, which journaling is a huge operative for self-understanding and social change through the application of the creative arts. And when you're creating narrative on a page, I mean, when you're putting down narrative on a page and you didn't plan it and you're discovering it as you write it, that's creative. That's a creative process. That's a creative, critical part of your brain that you're using. And the more you use it in that way, journaling, the more you're going to trust that part of your brain and have access to it when you are afraid. And when your fight, fight brain does try to intercede and push you in a direction that isn't thoughtful. So journaling is a lifesaver. And it is a social change agent. That's how I see it. And it's very related to emotion literacy. Now, you can, you can use language that you're accustomed to. And you may or may not know that you're creating something that's somewhat prohibitive to yourself. But because of the nature of journaling, I think you're going to be less likely to do that because you're opening up the perceptual door right off the bat. That's, that's the entry point is you're opening up, you're, you're letting curiosity steer you into that. And that's, that's a courageous act to be curious. Uh, a lot of people don't want to live in the I do not know factor of life because it can be very scary. And most people lean on that security brain and let them let that make the decisions. But a lot is missed in that. So emotion literacy, the way I teach it, is very detail-oriented, language-centric. It's not behavior-centric. I say in the back of my book, um, it's not a how-to kind of thing. I don't tell people how to come to understand themselves. I don't tell them they should, and it's not behavior-centric. And we're living in a behavior-centric world probably for centuries because it's part of the security. How people behave, that can determine whether or not you're safe, you know? And safety can be an illusion, really, in large part. We're always in, living in the unknown. There's always going to be uncertainty. So, you know, there's so many factors that come into it it, the whole thing kind of branches out, but the basic premise is that emotions aren't always a clear communication, and therefore, in order for you to understand yourself and what you need, they have to be translated. So that's the literacy part. And that's plain and simple, all that, it's, that it means. But of course, I bring all this other stuff into it, because the minute you start opening up your thinking, you start you know, calling into question the ways that People do think about things and whether or not they're feeling inquisitive or heart open, those are the two uh, basic, those, that's the basis for it, is to be feeling inquisitive and heart open or open hearted. <laughs> and, um, and that is a courageous stance in life because you could get hurt, but then you could also be enriched and loved and find people to love and, you know, be loved. I mean, it opens up possibilities. It does. It is risky. That's a fact. There's always some risk. Um, but if you're good at soothing yourself, 
then those risks are going to be easier to take. And I'd say journaling is a tremendous self-soothing activity. Absolutely. So I hope that wasn't just too, <laughs> too no. That was essential. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, I do want to make sure that I'm understanding because I haven't heard this this explanation, this definition of emotion literacy. So, and I also want to make sure that I'm understanding what you mean by the difference between feelings and emotions, because generally those terms are used interchangeably i know yes i, I use them interchangeably all the time i know everybody <laughs> i i guess i'm really i'm really peerless in that regard uh these ideas i've never seen expressed elsewhere even in some people whose job it is to uh you know um teach or coach or you know there are some famous people uh, out there that are relied upon uh, for, you know, self-care and they don't have the language piece. So I am a language artist. I'm a multidisciplinary language artist, which means I write works that are theatrical, musical, and literary. And um, so I'm living in language. And that's, I feel it's a missing link in a lot of these self-care endeavors that people do. And I don't expect people to be as meticulous with language as I am because it, it's it's a it's almost an afterthought. You know, it's secondary to what what they're intending to offer. Whereas with me, it's always been primary. Mm-hmm. That's, that's your my, foundation. Yeah, yeah, your it's foundation. my main, my main mm-hmm. thing. And so I have a different way of looking at at terminology, expressions. There are so many things I could, I could, you know, maybe I should do this someday. Take people on a tour through a bunch of memes and some that are, you know, quotations from famous, amazing contributors to our society. Some that are living, some that aren't. But there are these little areas where the door is locked. It's not as open-ended. And it has a pejorative quality. Um, even the whole, I mean, negative, positive, that's a quick way of identifying a quality of something. I understand that. However, when it comes to f- whole self-acceptance, qualifying things that way could seem like not all of you is acceptable. You know what I mean? It's like, yes. so even, even, with people in prison, and I've worked with people in prison. I've worked with kids in detention. I've worked with adult felons, and some of my writing has been used in um, in one pr- program in particular, sex offenders uh, at a prison where they were teaching nonviolent communication. NDC Marshall Rosenberg's work, and they used one of my pieces in that. Um, even people who have done horrible things need to be loved and understood. Mm -hmm. They may need to be restrained because they're very dangerous. However, I've seen a lot of, I've seen a prison program through Gabor Mate's work, um, who's a doctor and his whole thing is about trauma. 
And I think the more people rely on their security brain and make these quick fix decisions, knee jerk decisions, you can you can really pretty much assume that they're they're pretty traumatized and that they have a habit of being traumatized. Um, and the more traumatized you are, the bigger that part of your brain grows. So, you know, there's a lot of physiology that goes into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these things. I mean, we are in bodies, <laughs> you know, even if we want to say we're spirits having a human experience and we're more spirits than anything else, even if you want to think it that way, um, we are in human bodies and human bodies do have certain laws. They have certain ways that they function and the brain is huge. And these days, you know, narrative is sometimes the only way people connect is through texting and 87% of communication. I don't know if that's the, the actual consistent percentage but it's the one I've heard at some point, 87% is nonverbal. 80% of communication is nonverbal. Well, so that means you're only getting 13% when you text somebody. You know how easy it is to misread a text. Mm -hmm. You don't really know what else is there. So um, without the voice, and even then, you know, we're always interpreting each other. We're always translating each other. But this is a more conscious process, what I teach it really does look at the infrastructure. And that is my main interest in life. I really like to know what's behind the scenes. I want to know what's in between the lines, what's behind the scenes, what the mechanics are, and how language figures into that. As you're speaking about language, it's reminding me of a shift that I had to make during a difficult time in my life where I was going through a depression and um, I was in a relationship that had ended due to a act of violence against me. And during that time, my reaction and how I was speaking to myself, my self-talk, that language was, I was calling my emotions like anger, uh, well not, well, Anger, sadness, just things that I didn't particularly want to feel, feelings that were uncomfortable. I was reacting to them and saying that they were bad and I had shame for them. And it took me some time to work through that. I worked through it in my own way, therapy, some time and and things like that. But today, now I'm someone who is just accepting of whatever feelings come about within me. If I'm mad, then I'm just mad today. I don't attach a, a, a negativity to it. At least I try not to. It can happen, but I do try to approach my emotions with an acceptance. I also do my best not to use words like should, telling myself I should do things or should feel things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what you're also saying about language reminds me of, I don't know the official name of this type of therapy, um, I, I might get it wrong, but it's a therapy that centers itself around accepting whatever you're feeling. And it also incorporates making sure you're using language that is healthy for you and language that moves you forward. And that's what I'm thinking about as you speak about this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Instead of just throwing these feelings away and deciding, okay, this is the bad feeling, mm-hmm. you decide this is a feeling 
<laughs> it's there. It's fine. I'm going to let it have its moment on the stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to t- take the actions that I feel like are best for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very trapping thing when you approach your emotions with an idea of this emotion is negative because you begin to feel bad just about feeling bad. <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah. It. It's. It's. I'm thinking about one of the students I worked with. I worked a lot with. I have worked a lot and still do work with teens, and in writing programs actually. And um, one of the ones I've worked with writers and also theater actors. You know, teen in, in the teen milieu in high schools and private schools and and prisons. Um, and this one boy, I have this piece that I that I had, I didn't say what it was, but I mentioned that it was used in the prison. Uh, it's the Emotion Literate's Proclamation, and it starts with, I'm vulnerable living in the unknown. And that line repeats throughout it. And it kind of untangles into a different association to vulnerability um, that has more to do with learning. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. when you can sit in that place and be in the in the I don't know and face the uncertainty, you can learn something, you know. You could get hurt when you're vulnerable, but you cannot, you know, that, that term is just associated with, you know, really uh, difficult things. But this boy would say, why do you keep wanting me to accept my vulnerability? I've spent my life trying to get rid of it. And, you know, this is like a 15, 16-year-old boy saying this, spending his life trying to get rid of his vulnerability. And clearly... We could we could safely say that he is defining that in a very specific way, and what he is wanting to not have is the hurt. It's not the vulnerability. If that is your natural state of being, is that part? That's part. If that's part of the human condition, which I think it is, mm-hmm. it's like you with having those different emotions or feelings. What is it? that brought those in, that brought those up for you. What is it? And that's probably what you don't want, is whatever it is that brought that up. Um, It's not the feeling itself. It's not the response itself. That's part of you. That's part of your fabric to have that response for probably very good reason. And so it's important for you to distinguish you know, what is it that's, 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 what's the catalyst for that? Mm -hmm. And, um, and that your, your capacity to feel is really so essential. So again, I have an article, it's a free download on our website called Feeling Favoritism, Feeling Equity, Feeling Favoritism and Feeling Equity. So of course we play favorites, with certain feelings because, well, they're easier, they're more comfortable, they're associated with experiences we want, and they're more socially acceptable when they're expressed. Um, Whereas the other side of things, not so much. And that can fester. If we're living in a society where we're never allowed to really bring up any of that or share it or process it, you know, in community, well, privately first, of course, but in community, then then what? 
then we have a very explosive society because eventually those things come out. And, you know, scientifically speaking, I mean, it's, I think it's been studied and researched that the human body can only hold in so much stress. And at a certain point, that has to be released. And if you deliberately release it through journaling or crying or having a hot bath or asking for a hug or, you know, even hugging yourself, you know, holding yourself, soothing yourself in some way, then you will appreciate that spectrum and that capacity. It's really, really, really important that we encourage our our capacity to feel. Mm, I love uh, how you put that. <laughs> it's a human. It's human. You know, it's human. They're trying to make robots. You know, I think I think someone was trying to make a robot read emotion or read or express it or you know mimic it maybe. You know, but yeah, that's that's a really important part of being human. And I just sure hope that the digital world, the non virtual world, doesn't cause us to forget that it's not easy but i think you could become more versed in those parts of the spectrum i know when i have grief when something comes up for me and i have grief and i let myself have it i let that live inside of me i i let myself be with that and learn what story it has to tell me. You know, feelings are nonverbal. So, but you can, you can pick up on stuff. Things will come into your mind, you know, when that happens. And a lot of times, you know, when we have these feelings, our relationship to them is born out of our early experience of them and how they were received. So mm. we internalize that kind of that relationship and that response. So we aren't we are rarely invited to have those parts of the spectrum, sadness and grief and disappointment and frustration. You know, let's hurry up through that, get through that, get that over with. That's that's horrible. It's usually whatever it is that came up, you know, if a child I always use this as an example, if a child falls off a bike, they hurt afterwards they're going to shock they're usually rushed to get back on the bike because the parents afraid they're gonna be afraid to ride their bike because they fell off it but they have to sit with that experience you know and if they're rushed through it then they're going to learn how to rush through it for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. they often talk about boys just don't cry what boy what maybe maybe now maybe these days i don't know but most boys are definitely not invited to cry or not supported i'm not saying all parents are like that but generally speaking that's a, that's considered a sign of weakness so you don't want to be cast out of the social circle it's not the crying and i think that's really truly the the important part of the relationship is understanding you you don't not like your sadness you just don't like what caused it, you know, what brought it up. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can experience sadness, that you can know that about yourself, this is something you don't want to happen. You're sad. But there is a beauty in being able, and this this is a tough sell, really. It's a tough sell to say to someone, you know, grief can have its own exquisiteness. 
when you fully experience. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it's an important part of how you preserve yourself. Because, you know, yeah, we're not designed to like those things, but I think we can have a different kind of relationship with it. I'm not saying like being sad or like being frustrated because those are like, that's kind of like a steering mechanism. Okay, this is something that I don't want to happen again because I'll get really frustrated. So, you know, you can learn from these things, but something will come up again to frustrate you. This is a capacity that we have and life is going to take different turns and surprise us. And sometimes we will be disappointed. That's just the way it goes. And to, you know, you've heard, I would think, you've probably heard, you know, being, looking at the internet at all, the idea of toxic positivity. Yes. You know? Yes. That is such a prohibition. That is basically saying no to anything else. It, you know, a lot of the way people talk about positive, negative, it's a way of saying no before anything is even expressed, just here's, here's so you know, this, these are the restrictions here. These are the rules. And um, that, is, that is not a way to befriend yourself, to follow that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, stricture, if that's the right word, um, that kind of directive. That's not a self-loving offering no it's it's being controlling it's being controlling over your own feelings it's sort of like um i'm gonna say it's like emotionally gaslighting yourself like hey that's (laughs) stupid that's crazy you you shouldn't be feeling like that yeah go and be happy instead and it also if i try to do that for me it doesn't even work because it's inauthentic exactly it's it's inauthentic like i'm just pretending You know, I I went to a a, a talk that someone gave. He was a uh, a competitive athlete of of a interesting sort. He would go. He would do these marathons where he would go. He was in Seattle for this this visit, and part of what he did while he was here, and then he gave this talk, was run up a like a skyscraper building up and down. You know, that's what he did, and. He gave this talk and I thought it was great. He said, you know, I never give myself positive affirmations because part of my brain just doesn't believe it. Tell myself I'm this or that when I'm not really this or that. I'm tr- I'm, it's an inv- it's a, a vision how maybe I want to be, but I'm not going to tell myself I am that way when I'm not. Mm-hmm. And he said, what I do is I confirm something that's already happened. Like I put my shoes on. I went outside, I ran around the block and to, you know, acknowledge what he has done, but not necessarily to try to convince himself because I know that's part of it. Oh, you know, act yourself into a new way of feeling. Um, I think, yeah, the authenticity part is key because self-trust is really important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some part of yourself is going to sense if you're, You know, I mean, if you say, I'm envisioning this, I want this for myself, that's a different story. But if you say, I am this, I am loving, I am kind, I'm, you know, and in the moment, you're other things, maybe, (laughs) you know. Um, So you, you might affirm that you are that, 
you have that in your nature, you're basically that way, you know, yes. or that you want to aim to be more that way. But you know, what you say to yourself is really, really important. And um, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, there are a lot of voices out there that are afraid of social rejection. And so they present not the whole picture because of the fear that they'll be rejected. And what happens is a lot of people that see that then compare themselves to that. And when they can't measure up, you know, there's a lot of their suicide, the interest in suicide and people creating suicide or doing, you know, doing the, an act of suicide. A lot of that they're saying is encouraged by what people post and the fact that they post things that, you know, are just kind of one-sided and put on a certain face. And um, it's difficult for people to disclose um, when they think that, you know, it's not going to be accepted or the algorithms aren't going to send it around. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really tricky because a lot of our influences now are multiplied a million times over. And that really wasn't the case. I didn't grow up with that. I grew up with people in a room, not on a screen. And though I appreciate it and it's miraculous, it has some real pitfalls. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Especially if there is a lot of emotion illiteracy. And those kinds of memes keep getting repeated over and over. And I think that, you know, presenting, you know, a certain face on things when it's not fully authentic or not the full story, I think that 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 is a form of illiteracy. And I think it is. I think it's important to have a way of being courageous enough to care, you know. I mean, it's great to post good news and all that, but I think that, you know, some people post things and hide other things. And I think we all benefit from sharing more than just that. Absolutely. Because we're, we're all people. Like you said, we're in a body. We're all people. And our emotions, our feelings, they're not going anywhere. We're going to have <laughs> them yeah. until the day we die. <laughs> so... You know, we, we could really benefit from just um, freeing ourselves really from our own biases that we have against feelings that make us uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that's the name of the game is just teaching yourself, unlearning. Like you said before, you look at your emotions in the way of how they are reacted to. Maybe when you were young or maybe you just learned that society would accept you more if you present your feelings in a certain way. Yeah. Um, But that doesn't help you. The best thing you can do is just unlearn all of that and accept it how it is. Um, I have an interesting relationship with the word patience. I don't super like that word all the time. (laughs) I know that might sound a little silly. I'll put it in more context, but Typically, when that word is is used with me, it is for the purpose of putting what I'm feeling within a boundary and saying, well, no, that that crosses over the boundary. You need to be more patient. And my idea, my belief is what I feel is totally okay. What I do is a different thing. 
that's not always okay. But what I feel is always okay. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit. We just need to undo the biases and that we have with emotions and just really be okay with honoring what we're feeling. We're people. It's so silly when you think about it because we're human. We all know we're humans, but we look at each other and we tell each other, hey, you're doing some human things over there. You should probably stop because you look stupid. <laughs> so, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, and that's that's life. That's what we're doing. That's yeah, what we're yeah. doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, those two things are really critical. Patience, I think I understand why you have some caution around it. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's almost like a command. Mm-hmm. There's sort of like, it's almost like a way of, it's, it's an unspoken, it's another one of those unspoken rules. It's telling you um, how to pace yourself. Mm-hmm. And only you know how to pace yourself. You know, and um, it, it's, it, is, it is a somewhat repressive uh, kind of command to a feeling. If you're having a feeling you're responding to something with a feeling and you're told to be patient. Is it a form of censorship? Kind of. It depends on depends on what somebody's intending when they use that word. But I see a lot of these words have this other message in them. And that's Mm -hmm. the part that I think is so important when I talk about infrastructures, what's between the lines of even just that one word. Yes. And also unlearning is a hugely critical operative in any of this kind of self-awareness building, because absolutely we have learned ways to, to censor, to censor ourselves even to ourselves. That's mm-hmm. why journaling is difficult. That's why we need people. They're doing what you're doing because people have to relearn how to interact with themselves. Yes. Because the filter through which they learned could be extremely censoring and pejorative and commanding of limiting that awareness, really. Really, it comes down to what are you aware of in terms of what your internal landscape has going on in it? So unlearning is a huge part. That's the same thing as me saying I teach emotion literacy by teaching emotion illiteracy. So it's sense. like, yeah, what what don't we know? Uh, what is there to unlearn to create space for learning something new? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of that stuff is in our hard wiring and it's very difficult because most of what we adapt to and internalize has almost everything to do with our security. You know, children are constantly controlled. They have to be guided and monitored because they could get into trouble, you know. Um, they could, you know, hurt themselves. But um, there's a certain way of doing that that is permissive to the point where they will grow their relationship to themselves in a non-pejorative, non-censoring way. And 
oftentimes that's not the case because parents have a lot to deal with. So do teachers, anybody in charge when there are kids in a room, you know, there's a lot to handle. And so a lot of the actual, a lot of the things that people teach in social emotional programs are for the benefit of the teachers so that they can Mm -hmm. keep control of the room Mm -hmm. and parents too. So they can keep control, you know, and a lot of parents think their kids are taking advantage. Kids don't even have a fully developed brain yet. They're not, they're not going to be doing it. And if they're doing anything that seems manipulative, it's intuitive on their part. They're picking something up from the parents and they're intuiting how to get reactions or whatever it is, but it's a malicious process from a child. I've seen movies growing up where the kid is like, got some horrible, evil, something in them, Children of the Damned, I think it was called. Um, But, you know, parents can become very paranoid about their kids. Oh, they're kind of controlling me. Well, when you sign on to be a parent or a teacher, that is the biggest job on the planet because you're growing a human being. You're cultivating the growth of a human being. You're you're stewarding the growth of of a human being. And that human being is going to, you know, grow up and there are going to be many of them. <laughs> you know? And what are they going to do when they get together? Are they going to behave in a fight flight, you know, quick fix way? Or are they going to be thoughtful and empathic? Mm-hmm. And, you know, all that has to be, that's an influence that you're going to have reflected back to you or not. And I think innately people are empathic i've seen many things of children being so caring to other children i think it's an innate i mean i think you get brain drugs from it anyway too you know mm-hmm. like it feels better to be empathic when somebody behaves in a destructive way you have to understand that doesn't feel good to them that's they're they're mm-hmm. in they're in a horribly isolated state they are they are they are in a state of trauma and abandonment. Now, you still have to hold people accountable, but mm-hmm. that shouldn't keep you from attempting to understand what that person's going through. And I've used this before. I used it in another podcast. Greg Boyle, who's a um, Jesuit priest in L.A. Now, I don't know if he's still there, how he is. He was getting older, so I don't know how he's doing, but he worked with gangs down in L.A., and he said, Look at, at what people carry, not how they carry it. Mm-hmm. And that is an invitation to be empathic because how they carry it is the same thing as being behavior-centric. So this takes time. It takes courage to be curious, especially if you feel at risk around somebody. And, you know, plain and simple, you really can't afford that sometimes. You really can't. But it doesn't mean that you can't have that enter the mix at some point. And I think people are born beautiful and loving. I mean, I have a very optimistic way of looking at human beings. I really do. I think it's very much the exception for people to not have those qualities. But I think what happens is you become separated from that Mm -hmm. or your security because of the environment you grow up in whatever it is. And there are many levels of that, many degrees of trauma that happen in a household. But even in the most functional households, there still could be some trauma. And even siblings 
could have different experiences because parents project different things onto different kids, you know? I mean, you know, so there's just a lot to untangle. And again, journaling is a really important way to do that. And I think that what that allows for is a certain kind of freedom of choice. Yes, absolutely. The more you understand, the more you're at liberty to make a thoughtful choice, do the research, take your time. And I don't mean be patient. I just mean, you know, go at a slower pace that would be probably more soothing to go at. And um, I don't think if you're bound by your security brain and everything is about that and nothing else and everything is fear-driven, which is so easy these days to be afraid, that I don't really think people are free to make a choice, to make a thoughtful choice. I don't really think they are because that's not how that part of the brain works. It's a quick, it's a quick responder, you know? I mean, it's really for our physical survival. And when it's truly threatened, we aren't supposed to be contemplating our navel at that point. And, uh, you know, but oftentimes what people are sensing that's a risk and a threat is a projection of a previous fear or something someone suggested, you know, some what if, some you know, misinformation, (laughs) you know, it's so easy to bring that fear up these, especially these past couple of years, but many people, many different cultures have been living in fear their whole lives. And I know I'm a member of a culture like that, that's been severely traumatized from, and still is, still is a persecuted group. You know, um, but I do believe, I really do believe because I, you know, I, I know in the emotional intelligence book, which came out two years after I thought up the term emotional literacy in 1992, that book came out in 94. There was something in it, you know, scientifically about that. If you're in a fight flight mode, you don't have access to your thoughtful brain, creative, critical thinking part of the brain. But you know what? I mean, I have many friends that have had severe abuse in their childhoods. And they also happen to be artists. So I've had conversations, one recently with a friend that said, well, that's not true. Because I totally relied on that critical creative part of my brain. When I was in trauma, I painted, Mm. I wrote, you know, and that's precisely what I did with the trauma that I had that was so uh, societally acceptable that I didn't even know I was in trauma. But there were signs of it, but nobody recognized it. And I wrote, that's how I found a way to survive, was I created a universe in my writing. And, uh, you know, people have a sense of control when they have their phones and they have their delete button. But, but when, you're, when you're writing, when you're discovering things, Oh my gosh, you know, that is definitely going to give you a sense of agency. Oh yes. Oh yes. And that word control, it's it's amazing to me because what we feel we need, <clears throat> excuse me, and at one point I felt this way as well, 
where what we feel we need is more control to have our feelings and emotions in a chokehold and be able to direct them wherever, however we want. Um, But in reality, what we need is surrender. And I think that's honestly the challenge in journaling. Some people say, well, I don't really know what to write. And that's because we're just so used to, well, one, writing, we've been introduced to writing in a structured way where, you know, there's grammar rules and things like that. But also our emotions were introduced to how we ought to express our emotions and navigate our emotions in a structured way as well. So when you ask somebody to journal, you're asking them to release control and just let things happen. And it and there's there's a freeze of do what now? <laughs> Even if you don't know how to articulate that freeze or if you don't recognize it in that way, that's what it is. It's wait a minute, I have to just write like what I feel. I don't know what I'm feeling. I just, I feel okay, I guess. You know what I mean? So it's because we're looking for control when really what we ought to be looking for is surrender. Absolutely. And chokehold is such a good word. So so graphic. And it's important because it's it's really, it gives you that image because these are very subtle subtle realities we're talking about, you know, but chokehold makes it very, it's just, I love it. So graphic. And and then, you know, the surrender thing is just really, again, it's associated with being at risk. You surrender, you're not bracing yourself. You're not going to be safe. And, you know, the quality of life depends upon taking those chances. And really, I mean, you know, I've had, I've had many, I've run many programs uh, for a long time. My program was called Creative Writing for Emotion Literacy, which is totally about stream of consciousness. And I remember saying to people, you know, if you don't know what to write, let that be your point of departure. Just write down. I don't know what to write. Mm-hmm. See where that takes you. Just write what's on your mind, even if it's restrictive. Mm-hmm. Just write it down. And truly, what people will learn is what kind of language they've been taught to use, what kind of terminology, how Mm -hmm. do they talk about and communicate about something that is just so subtle inside of themselves that may not have been. You know, as a child, kids are congruent in the early stages till they're taught, till till they're stifled. You know, they're, they're, of course, they don't have as much comp, it's not, they're not as complicated yet, you know, but they don't have as many inroads or detours, but, you know, it's very direct what they feel inside and what they, what they, how they behave or what they express is congruent. And so journaling would be kind of an excavation process if you want it to be, like if you really want to get at your center, you know, or really understand how you are interacting with people or communicate, you know, because a lot of people probably would be writing about experiences they have with other people, you know, and um, that will definitely start to present something that will reflect back to them the spots where they're missing something, you know, it's like, what really happened here? You know, and if you ask those questions, 
then you might be able to disengage from some of those habitual ways of thinking about things or expressing about things, you know, and, and that I think is, I think that's almost inevitable. I don't know, but I think that's almost inevitable when someone starts to be willing to pour themselves onto a page and yes. take for what's there. I think that somehow, you know, I, hopefully the language trappings won't stay locked Yes, for them. That's the hope. And I think that's what you are uh, inviting people to have, mm-hmm. a liberating experience. I, I really think, I mean, I've looked at a lot of your messaging on your Instagram page and time and time and time again, you are devout. You are allied with that truth and with that essence and you are championing it. Mm -hmm. Because as you said earlier, my belief system is that we're emotional people. I believe that we are emotions. Everything we do is for an emotional reason. Now, some people hear that and they think that what I'm saying is that every action you take is driven from some sort of deep, passionate feeling, but you know, that's not really what I mean. What I mean is at our core, whatever you do, you are doing it for some kind of emotional purpose. You feel driven for a reason. I mean, the, we are mean? emotions at our core. That, well, that's what a person is. Uh-huh. Yeah, the feelings mm-hmm. and the needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feelings and needs, you know. Yeah. You know, you know? And I've, I, I remember thinking, and this is something I think I'm always, I'm always aware of, but I really started thinking about it in a really, really, really conscious way, just looking at individuals walking around. Like um, my husband and I would go to the farmer's market and then we'd park, we'd go and park in this, in a park, you know, near this like big work of art in, in, this is in Seattle. And, um, and we have lunch and, you know, we I mean, people were walking around and doing stuff and you would people watch. And I think God, every one of these people has to, they're in charge of their life, their body, their experience, they're walking around, you know, and that's a big job. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we, we just, we forget, you know, we, you can't think about everything. You know, there's just so many things happening and there's only so many things we can focus on. Um, but it's a big job. We, we come equipped with the things that will allow us to stay alive, you know, and feelings are a huge cue for guiding our way based on certain needs that we have, you know, um, the basic, you know, food, clothing and shelter. I mean, that's, there's nothing puzzling about that. We know Mm -hmm. what we have those needs, but the soft needs that we have, the soft needs for connection and, understanding and a trust, you know, and love, you know, those are just so abstract, really. And oftentimes, you know, we're not really encouraged to go by that, you know, um, to even have those needs. Um, but they're there. And I think, I think that's maybe what you're referring to is just this whole, whole uh, constellation of things going on inside that's 
it's kind of like our engine, you know, all those things, feelings and needs. We're feelings, human beings. We're not robots. Right. That is us. It's us. And that is us. (laughs) Muscles with memory in them. Mm -hmm. And we have, I think we have more than one heart. We have the heart, but then there's, what was it? Is it um, the heart of the brain? What there's another heart somewhere, Um, you know, but I can't think of what, what it is. I'm the concept I've got in my mind, but um, there's just, I mean, we have that nervous system. It, it is physical life is, I mean, we're not, we're not beating our hearts. Now what's keeping us alive. I mean, the energy of that is, is just beyond comprehension really. Mm-hmm. And the part that we can be conscious of, are the feelings and the needs and the expression and the communication and movement, you know? Um, but definitely I would say behind every action is a need or a feeling or both. Absolutely. I mean, they happen together. Feelings don't happen by themselves. They happen for a reason. And they're usually, there's a need there. Um, I would say a lot of people aren't fully aware of their soft needs. And when we're talking about interacting with other people, those play prominently in every relationship, we need to have trust. We need to have love and understanding and meaning and purpose. And once again, yes. I have to say that meaning and purpose can be discovered through journaling. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, because that we do have language and language is a huge, I mean, there's, I mean, I think about people drawing pictures in caves. We've always wanted to communicate. We're beings that communicate. I think all creatures communicate, and whether we understand the, the, their language or not. Mm-hmm. That's a huge part of being alive. And again, a focused experience on paper. I mean, I will vote for that every time. Yes. Journaling for the win. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was all the thoughts that I had to share. Do you have any other additional points? Just gratitude for your, um, you know, your brilliance and your courage and your heart and your spirit. Just gratitude. Because ever since I discovered you on Instagram, I was always just in awe and so appreciative because I feel like I just I just hope more and more people discover you. Um, uh, I think that this is something that would be an important activity to incorporate ongoing, whether you do it every day, it doesn't matter just to have that, you know, it's kind of like you brush your teeth, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you journal, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really uh, a life preserving activity and life discovering and, um, it is, as I said before, it is a form of social change, really, for people to visit with their interior landscape mm-hmm. and really understand it. And, you know, that creates tremendous community because, like I'm sure people have said in, in previous podcasts, the more you understand yourself, the more you're going to be more likely to understand other people you know, have the capacity for that because we, we are unique 
and there is always there is always a universal thread that c- connects us all and you're going to contact that the deeper you go in a journal you're going to contact those universal threads and we desperately need universal community we need human community more than ever now we do um, yeah we do I appreciate those words. I promise you, I will play that part on loop like every day. Um, <laughs> but where where can everyone find you? What are your where 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 can they find more of you? Well, I uh, my work, my narrative work is um, very available. A lot of different forms of it, songs. Um, I don't my theatrical work even. Uh, I don't know if some of that is easy to download or downloadable yet, but uh, articles I've written, things that I've mentioned in this podcast, they're easy to find on emolit.org. That's Emotion Literacy Advocates, my nonprofit. Um, And uh, that's the website for that, emolit.org. And there may be links to to a couple of subdomains that have even more information. We also have a lot of... Uh, snippets of things on uh, our YouTube channel and our Instagram channel. I'm not posting right now um, because I'm working on other projects and I just, I, I'm just not, but there's so much there. There's really so much content there. Those channels are at the same address. Instagram and YouTube channel are at the same address. It's just emotion literacy advocates, not emotional emotion. So it's just all three words as if they're one lowercase, no dots or spaces. And you just type in emotion literacy advocates and find a lot of snippets, a lot of encouraging ways of thinking, you know, feeling inquisitive, um, open hearted ways of thinking in snippets from various types of writings that I've done. Um, And I have books and um, I have a curriculum. And I'm still working on how to make that available. Um, I have songbooks. They're not presently listed yet on you on YouTube. But um, if people want to inquire about anything, they're welcome to send me an email. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of there are a lot of things there, and there are also videos. I did a series of one thing for sure about this and that, different topics, like one thing for sure about self-trust, one thing for sure about grief, one thing for sure about uncertainty. And I, they're very short; they're like two minutes. And I talk about um, my own experience with that that topic, and then I encourage people to explore further in one or other of my. Um, learning tools, books, or or, uh, multimedia tools. And then I also have a podcast that I did with Ryan Brown that you can find through emolit.org where it's called Shadow Work, Breaking the Rules to Address Trauma, Depression, Suicide, and Healing. And he did a lot of research. Um, his podcast is sort of on a spiritual, in a spiritual direction, but this was very gritty, (laughs) um, these topics, but more, I, you know, there's a lot about emotion literacy in there. There's a lot of very nuanced, uh, concepts in it. And he did an incredible job editing it. 
because we talked for three hours and the podcast <laughs> is 45 minutes, but it really does capture, he had a way of editing it. It really does capture a lot of the nuances that I think are re- really vital for emotion literacy learning. Um, okay. And anything I would recommend and endorse anything you have, uh, <laughs> um, please look at that, your stuff, Tiffy stuff, because it's it's also extremely encouraging. And Thank you I- so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be sure to put your links in the description of this episode. So that way people can hit the show more button and go right to your page, uh, to your website to find more of you. So thank you again so much. This was such an insightful conversation. Um, It's definitely an episode I'm going to listen to more than once to continue to uh, gather that insight again, because just the way, I mean, you're a language artist and it shows. So (laughs) just the way you uh, explain emotion literacy is, is a lot of the words I was missing you have provided today. So I appreciate you. I appreciate your work and I hope that we can do this again sometime. (laughs) I be more than happy to. I'd love to, honestly. I would love to stay in touch, period. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Well, with that being said, everybody, happy journaling.